0: Well, would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. It's page 774, a little tough to find in a Blue Pew Bible, but would encourage you to follow with us there. So there's a man named John Newton that, maybe if you have some church background, you may or may not have heard of him. He was a pastor in the 1700s in England. And as many pastors were in those days, he was also a songwriter. And he wrote a song that he titled, quote, Faith's Review and Expectation, which is still one of the most well known songs in the world. To that, you might be skeptical and say, Really? I I don't buy that. And it's true, it's just that we know it by a different title. Uh, because you see, while these old pastors and, uh, and songwriters—they were great with lyrics—they were terrible with titles. I mean, just like they just needed some help there. And so, at some point in the line, somebody changed the title, and we actually sang it about 15 minutes ago. Let me read the first stanza: "Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind." but now I see. So John Newton, most well known for the song Amazing Grace, but before he was a pastor, John Newton was a slave trader. He worked as a shipman in the grotesque world of chattel slavery. The biggest black eye on Western civilization is far and away this debased reality of slavery. And it shaped the course of history and cultures. And if you kind of consider the trajectory of history, it really just was not that long ago that all this took place. We're not talking ancient history. And we, in 2019, are still facing difficulties and divisions related to race and struggles with racial reconciliation as a society because of chattel slavery. And it wasn't until God stormed his heart, opened his eyes to his own sin, to his own kind of contribution to this, that he began to change course. A course that eventually led to saving faith in Jesus Christ and then to a life in ministry. Um, But I want to read an excerpt from a letter he wrote, recounting the night where his eyes were turned upon Jesus Christ for the first time. It's a letter that he wrote to his friend Thomas, recounting a time He was on the ship, and let me read an excerpt of it. We left the banks on March 1st with a hard gale of wind westerly, which pushed us fast homewards. I went to bed that night in my usual security and indifference, but was awakened from a sound sleep by the force of the violent sea which broke on board. So much of it came down below as filled the cabin I lay in with water. This alarm was followed by a cry from the deck, and the ship was going down. The sea had torn away the upper timbers on one side and made a mere wreck in a few minutes. Taken in all circumstances, it was astonishing and almost miraculous that any of us survived to relate the story. I went to speak with the captain who was busied elsewhere, and just as I was returning from him, I said, almost without meaning, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. This, though spoken with little reflection, was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for the space of many years. I was instantly struck with my own words. And as Jehu once said, what hast thou to do with peace? So it directly occurred to me, what mercy can there be for me? A storm, a physical storm that threatened his life proved to be the very kind of severe mercy he needed to turn to Christ. We are in the second week of our series going through this little book of Jonah, and and this amazing grace that John Newton experienced, this relentless grace, if you will, will be eerily similar to what we're going to see this morning in God's Word. Uh, So for those who maybe missed last week or you're visiting for Mother's Day and you got forced to be here, glad you're here. Um, We're starting slow in this book of Jonah uh, in chapter 1 because a lot happens to kind of set the foundation for the rest of the book. And so we began last week with just three verses where God came to Jonah. God gives him this clear command. He says, Arise and go to the great city of Nineveh and speak out against it for their evil has come upon me. Right? So God calls him to give warning to another nation. This warning, like every warning in the Bible, it's a means of grace with the hopes that the nation of Nineveh will, will repent and, and experience renewal. So all is going well for one verse in the book of Jonah. But this command, Jonah said, no. He arose and went to Joppa. Joppa is a port city in the very opposite direction of Nineveh, and he gets on this boat, and he's sailing in the direct opposite direction. Um, Jonah did not see God's vision for this command, for this word, and so he chose to rebel against it. Jonah said, no. So that was the first three verses, and today we're going to look at the next three verses. So follow with me, not going to be long, but chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. We're going to take two Sundays to talk about this storm. This morning, we'll look at the start of it. Next week, we'll look at the end of it. And the reason why I I do feel like we need to slow down is because this is very important to understand, a very important topic to understand, and very easy to misunderstand. And as we will see, hopefully quickly, this passage has much to say and apply to our lives. So up front, I'll say this, as cliche as it is going from the text to our lives, there are many storms that will come upon our lives, many storms that will bring suffering. Many of you are in one right now, and a storm may be caused by different ways— but all storms are calling us to the same response. Different causes, same response. And so we're going to look at this storm in Jonah 1. And we're going to see it from three perspectives this morning. We're going to see it from the perspective of Jonah, from the sailors, and then from God. So that's where we're going first. The storm according to Jonah. God in his relentless grace will not allow Jonah to run without pursuit. So if Jonah refuses to go to the great city, which we read about in verse 1, he will now instead go into a great storm, as we read about in verse 4. And the ship is heading west across the Mediterranean Sea. It's on its way to a place called Tarshish, which is located in modern-day Spain. And maybe you knew this if you're a weather guru. About two times a year, roughly, the Mediterranean Sea gets hit with what is called a medicane. Have you heard of a medicane? I can only assume it's a hurricane in the Mediterranean, but maybe I'm assuming too much. But it's a medicane, and it's this cyclone type of weather. It's heavy rain, heavy wind. So maybe this was a medicane that hit Jonah's boat. But either way, the Bible is very clear. The storm was hurled, Interesting word. Hurled onto the sea by God. It was not coincidence. It was a direct response from a sovereign God to a rebellious prophet who said no. Who disobeyed God's word to go and proclaim the good news to the lost. Who ignored God altogether and fled his presence. And, and so um, just very simply, like what, what does that tell us? Well, to start, it tells us that the Lord never glosses over disobedience to his word. If we are tempted to think, and I would venture to say we are tempted to think, that certain versions of disobeying God or ignoring God's word is kind of a small thing. There's some real big things we've got to avoid, but there's some little things that we can take some freedom with that we are... Just a small disobedience. And if we think our disobedience is ever just kind of a small offense, we are largely mistaken. As Tim Keller says, my buddy Tim Keller, he says, every sin has a storm attached to it. So clarity is going to be very important this morning. You're going to have to dial in with me. I'm not saying that every trial in life, every bout with suffering, every storm in your life is there because of your sin. Because as we'll see, there's other people in the boat, right? Other people who are in the same storm, not due to them. So all trials are not because of sin, but hear me closely, all sin leads to a trial of some sort. Every sin has a storm attached to it. And the reason is because the Bible tells us sin separates us from God. It disintegrates, and it leads us into open waters where we are more susceptible to the storms it brings about. So when I go against God's word, I go against God's design for how he created the world to work. And we all know, and you can use a lot of illustrations, that it is unwise to go against the design of something. It usually does not work out, and it leads to trial. Trial. It leads to suffering. You know, in Jonah's case, this was an immediate storm. It was this immediate consequence to his sin, and that might be the case in our lives, okay? So if you have Mother's Day brunch after today, and you go, and you just you drink too much at lunch, but you're like, ah, oh, I don't, you know, I want to Uber, I want to drive home. Well, first of all, you shouldn't drink too much, but second of all, you shouldn't drive home. And let's say you drive home, and you get pulled over because you're swerving. And you get a DUI, and you're sitting in a jail cell. You cannot sit in that jail cell and go, mm, I'm just a victim in a broken world. <laughs> just bad luck. It's not on me. Like, no, that is a storm attached to your sin. That is, you willfully sinned and then you got caught, and there's this immediate storm. And that might happen from time to time. But more often, the storms are not seen right away, it's gradual. You might not feel even any pain the moment it happens. I would venture to say Jonah felt no pain when he disobeyed God. Went down to the boat, opposite direction, I'm going to the south of Spain without any thought in his mind. It might not be for months, it might not be for years of running, and still no indications that it will eventually come back to hurt you, but like a disease where symptoms might not pop up for 15 to 20 years after infection oftentimes we don't feel pain from the sin we commit for a long time. So if we want to be faithful in following Jesus, we need to to be honest with ourselves because it's very easy to say, let's be faithful in following Jesus, and it becomes very hard to do because we are very good at making peace with our sin. Especially the ones where we think, ah, it's not that bad. There's really not that many consequences involved. Nobody even really knows about it. It's just kind of my thing. I'll make it work. right, so let me share one of the most private and rampant sins of our world. Pornography. Really, Pastor, it's Mother's Day. You're going in on pornography. Yes, I'm going in on (laughs) pornography. (laughs) And the reason why is because it's so rampant. And the reason why it's so rampant is because it's so private, we get very uncomfortable with it. And it's so easy to hide, to keep to ourselves. And we can think, you know what, I'm not really hurting anyone with this. And that's a lie. It hurts a lot of people, starting with yourself. You know, one thing where science has really just helped us, and I love where science and God's word just starts to jive, because it does, because God created science, is how all the studies of showing how pornography literally rewires your brain. It changes you physiologically and psychologically, which then leads to physical changes. And there's this, you're creating wider pathways, wider highways in your brain that just now needs more and desires more and leads to addiction. And like any addiction, of course, it starts impacting relationships. Pornography is linked to increased social anxiety, to depression, to low motivation, Not to mention the money that online views produce for a porn industry, which is often linked to dark websites that is often linked to the global sex trade. So that's one example. We could go on. But the common denominator is that while we can shame ourselves sometimes, sometimes we're our own worst worst critics, more often it can become a habit and think, man, I've been doing this for a long time, and you know what? God hasn't exposed me yet. Maybe this isn't a big deal after all. So just, I'll say this, we should be very careful to not confuse God's patience for acceptance. Just God, because God is being patient with not bringing storms as a result of sin immediately does not mean he's accepting of our disobedience. And I was actually just sharing this with the staff a couple weeks ago as I was studying for Jonah, that I can fall into this trap kind of almost without knowing it. That if things are going well in my life, God must be pretty happy with me. If things start to derail a little bit, God must be upset with me. I'm a pastor, and that I'm, I'm starting to, I can just find myself just drifting into that, that, just judging God's love for me based upon how are things going today. And then there's certain sins that I can fall into and kind of notice, listen, things are still going well, and I'm doing this over here, so maybe God's not too upset with this. And it's this kind of wicked, dangerous cycle of self-justification because despite this major storm coming upon the boat jonah amazingly is asleep a deep sleep like he was not struggling before this storm came he's not laying in wake at night struggling with whether or not he's obeying god's word he was a okay with his decision he thought this was going to be the best sleep ever he'll wake up he's in spain how lovely So sometimes we'll feel our disobedience. Oftentimes we'll be blinded to it. And you see how Jonah kind of uses this word on repeat. In verse 2, he went down to Joppa. In verse 3, he went down into the ship. In verse 5, he went down into the inner part of the ship. This is the direction of disobedience. Downward, away from the heights of victory offered us in God's word. And like Jonah, we often need something from outside of us rather than from within us to turn the lights on. And praise God for his relentless grace that he loves you too much to let you go without pursuit. This is the storm according to Jonah. Second, the storm according to the sailors. Um, so, So once, and I think it's important we started there, that we're honest about the fact that storms may occur in our lives because of our own sin, it's also, I think, fair to say the vast majority of suffering we will experience in this world will come as a result not of just our direct sin, but our existence in a fallen world or our proximity to the sin of others, right? The Bible is clear in telling us that suffering is a reality for us all, believers, unbelievers in this world, and if you consider the most prolific account of suffering in, in the Bible, if somebody coming, bring me to the person who suffered the worst, where are you going? The story of Job. And we are told right away in Job, he was a righteous, upright man in God's eyes, and yet he lost it all. You can go to the Apostle Paul. He gives this kind of list in 2 Corinthians 11 of his suffering, and there is some intense stuff in there, including three shipwrecks. If I get one shipwreck, I'm done, all right? Like, I'm staying on land. He, three times, shipwrecked, right? Natural disasters come down his boat. That is the most prolific missionary this world has ever seen, doing the Lord's work, suffering. In fact, Jesus said before he before he died on the cross if you want to be my disciples it's going to hurt there's going to be suffering involved you see there's always a cost to, to following jesus it might hurt it will hurt it's why paul can even shockingly say we can rejoice in our sufferings because it will make us more like christ and so i say all that to say this all suffering is not created equal This boat was full of sailors on their way to Tarshish and they were caught up in the same storm that the Lord hurled upon the sea. And the response is much more reasonable than Jonah's. They are freaking out. They know a storm when they see one and they think, this is it. And they all begin to cry out to their God and they begin hurling cargo off the ship as God hurled winds and rains upon the ship and they shake Jonah and they're like, what are you doing? Pull your weight. Grab some cargo and start tossing. Pick a god and start praying. Let's go. And this sets up a little interesting story within the story. Because these sailors were not Jewish. Joppa was a port city outside of Israel. They're each calling to their own god. And so they are pagan Gentiles. They are non-Israelites, just like the very people in Nineveh who Jonah is trying to run away from. So he tries to run away from people who are not God's people, and he ends up in a ship with people who are not God's people. And in the story, the pagans are acting more commendably than Jonah. Like, their response sounds like the response of John Newton I read at the beginning. A storm that caused them to now look into the spiritual realm, see what they find. And how sad is it that even the pagans who don't know the one true God are praying And the one man in the boat who does know the one true God is sleeping. And so we will carry this theme forward into next week's sermon. But God in his sovereignty uses the example of pagans to awaken his children. Physically and spiritually. And that has a lot of implications for us as how we ought to engage with and respectfully interact with the world that doesn't know Christ. So that's a little teaser Come back next week. But for now, we have a storm. And you have Jonah who was responsible for it. You have the sailors who were not responsible but still caught up in it. And this is the reality of suffering. It's a reality that we live in every single day. Sometimes we're suffering because of our own actions. A lot of times we're suffering because of the sinful actions of others that we're in proximity to or in a natural world. There's cancer diagnosis and there's tornadoes and there's all kinds of things that might lead to suffering. And there is no one in this room who does not and has not and will not suffer in some way. And pastorally, at this point, just let me say this, we could drive ourselves crazy always trying to figure out if we're suffering because of something that's our fault or not. There's a really haunting question we can ask in our own hearts, and the question is this, is God punishing me right now? Am I being punished? Is that why this diagnosis came back the way it is? Is that why my son won't talk to me? Is that why I can't land a job? Is God punishing me right now? And the reason why I would caution us with that question is because it can often paralyze us and lead to a mindset that God is just a God to be fearful of. And He's just waiting to hit us with a two by four around the corner, and He's angry, and He's not gracious. But that's not our God. The question should not be Is God punishing me in this storm? But rather, What is God's purpose for me in this storm? Amen. Which leads to the third point the storm according to God. The reasons why the sailors and Jonah are in the storm are vastly different, but as we will see now and in the coming weeks, God will use a single storm to draw them all close to himself. God uses storms in our lives to draw us near to himself, to strengthen our faith. And so um, here's where, maybe you're not interested in this, but maybe there's a question in the back of your mind. If you're maybe a skeptical or you struggle with the things of Christianity and the beliefs, here's a question that you would have if I were you. Does this mean God causes all suffering? A natural question flowing out of this story would be, wait, wait, so every time there's suffering, does God cause that? Does he, like in Jonah's book, hurl every natural storm you read about on the news? Is God in the heavens just hurling storms at people, many of which take lives, cause all kinds of suffering? Like, are we okay with this? We're just going to let this go? Shouldn't this bother us? Make us Pause. And so it's worth reflecting briefly upon it now, although this could be and should be probably an entire sermon one day, is that here's what the Bible gives us. Listen closely. God does not necessarily cause all suffering, but he is always sovereign over it. So again, anytime you're going to talk about suffering, it's going to lead you at some point to the book of Job. And we read very clearly in Job, and I think the reason why Job's in there is is to give us some answers and some clarity on this question, that Satan caused all of Job's sufferings through natural disasters, through personal affliction, took his family, took his things, took his possessions, took his land, took his health. But Satan is on a leash. He goes no further than the Lord decisively permits, which is why, amazingly, Job can say after he lost it all, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And there's this distinction all throughout Scripture that God does not necessarily cause suffering. That suffering comes as a result of the world being fallen and fractured. So he's not kind of causing and inflicting it, laughing like a tyrant up in heaven. But he is always sovereign over it, which means he always has a purpose in it. And therefore, his purpose in our suffering is seen throughout Scripture to draw us near to himself in faith. And we as Christians are clinging to these promises, one of which is found in Romans chapter 8, that God works all things. And you know what all means? All. Not just the good things. Not just the neutral things. All things, even the worst things, he works together for good. Some of which we might see. You know what? Most of which we probably won't see or ever understand until glory. But just because we don't see it, doesn't mean it's not true. Remember, Jonah couldn't see why would God call him to preach the good news to Nineveh? Those guys are wicked. Not Boston good wicked. Like, wicked wicked. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that just because he couldn't see it, that it wasn't ultimately good for him to do it. And the main point to notice in these verses is that the storm will end up being God's grace upon Jonah's life and the life of the sailors because it took a storm to fix their eyes upon him. So think about it. This storm is not God's wrath. It's God's grace. You know what God's wrath would have looked like in Jonah chapter 1? Let this ship go to Tarshish with clear skies the whole way. Jonah sound asleep the whole time. That would have been God's wrath. Because Jonah, if that were the case, would have never returned to the Lord. The sailors would have never turned to the Lord, and they would have never gotten onto the pathway of obedience and would have literally and figuratively sailed off. This is what the Bible tells us in Romans 1. God's wrath looks like him just handing people over to their own sinful desires, saying, you want that? Okay, it's yours. That's God's wrath. But God's grace is when he inflicts severe mercies on his people and wounds them enough to help them. Like a master surgeon who has to wound you in order to heal you. And so here's what we concede. We are not happy when storms happen in our lives. We don't need to be weird about it and go, this is awesome. It's not awesome. To go through a storm, to suffer. And we should never tell people who are in the storm to go, come on, God works all things for good. Didn't you hear that? Romans 8.28. Don't quote that verse to somebody who's suffering. Let it breathe. But we can honestly look back on our lives and say that our faith is strengthened more so in times of trial than it is when everything's going well. So one thing I have the opportunity to do is when people go through the membership process and they just kind of share their story or or I'm sitting down with people as they're filming their baptism story, you, you hear, how did God save them? How how did God bring them to faith or how did God return them to the faith after drifting? And the vast majority of the time, there is a moment of struggle in everyone's story that God used to fix their eyes on him, to bring about salvation or to bring about a recommitment of their lives. And oftentimes, a lot of the stories are like mine. You grew up in church, you could pass all the quizzes, but then you drifted. And you fell into the sinful desires of the flesh and you began questioning and then something happened that shook their faith that God ultimately used to draw them back in. God's grace. A time of suffering that God used to get their attention. This might not always be the case but it very often is that God speaks loudest in our pain. There's a member of our church uh, Maria Verhoog. Um, several of you know, probably most of you don't, that Maria lost her husband in the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. A level of suffering and shock most of us will never experience. A storm that rocked her world along with her two children, Gabriella and Cameron, I believe were ages six and four at the time a few years back i was preaching on a passage in job and if you were here for that you remember that maria gave a testimony a little glimpse into her story and in god's providence as i was preparing this sermon like all i could think of is go to that like that's true in the scripture is it true in real life and so we're going to watch just a 2 minute clip of that video now from maria
1: i know that god is the giver of all good things and when he gives he gives but there are times where he permits suffering uh, your life can change so drastically in the blink of an eye and and what's so significant to me about job is even in the midst of all this suffering and the anguish that he goes through and the the wrestling that he has with God he still gives glory to God and acknowledges him his greatness is so enormous we can't we can't even begin to comprehend how incredible that is and yet God wants us to look towards him And I am overwhelmed by the amount of joy that he's brought into my life, just in knowing that he's with me, he's with my children, he's never abandoned me, that his plan for me is good. The Lord must have saw it as necessary in some way or another to bring about a greater purpose somewhere down the line. What that is, we don't always see. Could be to increase our faith, it could be to make us stronger, it could be so that we would look to Him finally. I don't think I would have opened my eyes on my own. I think the Lord had to permit suffering in my life, for me to see him.
0: For those of you who know Maria, you know, she uh, and her husband Ben, they got married four or five years ago, faithful, awesome members uh, of our church and just walking embodiment of what God can do. And I texted Maria yesterday because she is down right now. Her son, who was four, when her first husband Craig passed away on 9-11, uh, just graduated from college Uh, this past weekend down in North Carolina. So I texted her yesterday for permission to re-show a clip of this. And this is what she texted back. Um, She said, you know, it was Mother's Day 17 years ago that I first stepped foot into Grace Church. Mother's Day 2002 that God finally brought her the courage to come to church for the first time and her life changed forever. And we can all find some level of comfort in Maria's words that what we read in Scripture can and does line up with experience, that even in the storm, He's good. And so, as we close, I don't know what storms you're facing. I don't know which ones you're still recovering from. I don't know which ones that might come up through a phone call this very week. But I do know that God is sovereign, and He wants to use them to draw us near to Himself because He is good. And we know he is good because he did not withhold his one and only son from dying on the cross on our behalf. He did not withhold his one and only son to go through the ultimate storm so that we can be forgiven and given the opportunity of new life. You know, there's no one in this world who is totally innocent when it comes to suffering. At worst, our own actions cause it. At best, we are culpable in the reason that the world is fallen, because our sin contributes to it. But Jesus is the only one who could say he was completely innocent. And yet, by God's grace and the joy set before him, he endured the worst suffering, and by his blood we are healed. We began the morning looking at the story of John Newton, the recipient of amazing grace, who by that grace gained his sight for Jesus. And so I'm going to end with my favorite Newton quote. In the cross, the Christian finds daily forgiveness, spiritual power, godly motivation, daily healing, and eternal hope. See, the cross is not just for non-believers. It's the sustaining grace for all believers. We need daily healing. We need eternal hope to endure the storms of life, and that's exactly what we get when we look to the cross. Let's pray.